Hello everybody. Welcome to the 64th live episode of the Ask Abhijit show. It's very nice to be back among you. And today is a live chat session which means that I will be taking questions that you are asking to me live in the live chat. So, who else do we have here? I can see lots of people. And a good evening to everybody. I will not take everyone's name today. Uh before I begin, I would like to thank a couple of people. the ones who have been doing the time stamps so i want to thank harshit harshit 2.0 every episode he has been doing the time stamps it's a very tedious task but he's doing it to help all of you and also i would like to thank akash buller who had done that for a long time in the past uh, this is a very tedious time consuming job and it's it's a, a great help to all the viewers to have specific time stamps for every question So I want to thank Akash Bullar and Harshit 2.0 for doing this work without uh, without me asking for that. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate that. Uh, the thing is, I have been thanking them in the comments, but if you really feel grateful, you should thank them in public. You should thank people you feel grateful for in public. So that's what I would like to do. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Right. So now let's begin with the questions. If you have questions, let's have them. let us have the questions uh what questions do we so i will mostly take questions from the uh, live chat but maybe a few from the comments because uh, there were there were a lot of questions that i had selected yesterday i was not able to cover them all so maybe i will pick a few from those there's always lots of questions and i'm unable to answer most of them unfortunately so let's see what we have today let us see where was that question i click on something it disappears <laughs> hang in there okay there was okay here is the question this is by vaishnav pt and the question is why can't the sindhu saraswati civilization have two languages tamil and sanskrit listen i don't see anything wrong with this uh, this civilization having 10 languages india has always been a very large civilization lots of different language groups uh the civilizational language the glue that bound the civilization together has always been sanskrit but there have always been lots of other languages uh, existing in parallel right and that's the always been the case throughout the length and breadth of the indian civilization see 
a thousand years ago in Indonesia, Sanskrit was the civilizational language. Even today, they consider Sanskrit to be the civilizational language. And yet, their actual native language is the Bhasha Indonesia. Bhasha Indonesia. So even a thousand years ago, when Sanskrit was the official state language, civilizational language, etc., the uh, vernacular language would or would would certainly have been Bhasha Indonesia, right? And uh, similarly, if you go to the Philippines, you, you have the Tagalog language, but they also had uh, Sanskrit and so on and so forth. So the point is, when you have a landmass as large as India, a subcontinent-sized landmass, you're going to have lots of languages that are spoken, but you need one civilizational language to bind the entire civilization and culture together. And that has always been Sanskrit. That's always been Sanskrit in India. Uh, Sanskrit is the oldest Indo-European language that we know of. It's the oldest language that we know of anywhere in the world. And uh, so I have, I am sure there were lots of languages that coexisted at the time. But the high language, the, the civilization language was, was always Sanskrit. Tamil would have existed. I mean, Proto-Tamil or something like that would have existed. And there are lots of other languages. Uh, most of the languages that we speak in India today, especially in the northern half of India, western half, and also eastern half to some extent, these languages are all derived from Sanskrit. But you also have a bunch of other languages down south that seem to have a... a kind of a separate origin, but possibly. So the linguistic analysis has never been done. We only rely on the linguistic analysis that the Bishop Caldwell did, which was not even a proper, redeem, uh, proper linguistic analysis. And after his analysis, no other linguist has bothered to actually examine the roots of the languages of Southern India in, in detail, ab initio, properly, not relying on the bishop, the good bishop, you know. So that has never been done. And that's why we are not quite sure what are the origins of all the Indian languages. They are, I am sure that every Indian language has very ancient roots. Maybe they go back tens of, tens of thousands of years. It's quite possible. right? Uh, India is the original founder zone of the out-of-Africa migration. The first place where humanity settled after leaving Africa was India, the Indian subcontinent. And our uh, genetics have been evolving ever since for the past 60, 65,000 years, maybe 70,000 years in the Indian subcontinent. And so have the languages. So all of these languages most likely have their roots right here, right in, inside the Indian subcontinent. Uh, but the oldest language that we know of is Sanskrit. That's what I can say. So even during the Sindhu-Saraswati phase of India's civilization, there must have been lots of languages that were spoken in various parts of the geography. But the civilizational language has always been unambiguously Sanskrit. Okay, let us take the next question. Anish says, can you speak about the depth of knowledge of ancient Indians the, which, they which our uh, ancestors had about astronomy? For example, Jupiter, the largest planet, is called Guru in Sanskrit. Yes. And Guru means big or huge in Sanskrit. I'm not sure. Okay, maybe it does. Uh, but okay, what about the knowledge that we had about astronomy? So we, our ancestors have been had been studying the heavens, the movements of the planets and the stars, etc. for thousands of years. And we know that because uh, uh, 
the oldest evidence of a supernova explosion the oldest human recorded evidence of a supernova explosion is found up in northern india uh, in uh, the in the kashmir valley i think uh, and uh, it's a supernova that was recorded on a stone carving so you have a stone carving with a, a couple of constellations there are depicted there and there are two suns in the sky so it clearly means that one of these suns is our actual sun the star that we orbit around and the other one because we only have one sun so the other one was some celestial phenomenon which was almost as bright as the sun so that can only be a supernova and if you look at the position of the supernova in the in the in the star chart you are actually able to go back in time and pinpoint which supernova event it was so it happened i think about uh, several thousand years before today i don't remember the exact date uh what we can do is we can look it up online let's let's take a look at that so let's google it uh kashmir kashmir supernova two suns no it's a supernova drone 6000 years ago so this is the this is the uh chart that was found in the stone carving in kashmir's uh, burza hama site they initially they thought it depicted a hunting scene because there are two guys one with uh, a spear and one with this bow and arrow and they seem to be hunting the these two animals but then it was realized it was actually a, a, star, a sky chart constellations and there are two suns and then when it was uh, examined further they did they, they realized it is supernova hb9 a star that exploded about 6000 uh, 4600 bce so that is the deal so it shows how long ago indians were were uh, studying the night sky and recording such events and we have a we uh, when the greeks came to india during uh, Seleucus Nicator's time when they came to the court of our emperor Chandragupta Maurya they they saw that uh, the indians the ancient indians of that time they had a calendar that went back all the way to around uh, i don't know 6000 something bc let me take a look at that let's find the exact date saptarishi calendar saptarishi calendar uh so that goes back to 6676 bc and so that tells you how long indians had been uh, reckoning time and how long they had been recording events and calendars are always tied to astronomy because you cannot uh, determine the exact length of a year of a month etc and so on and so forth without studying the stars the sun the moon etc the moon's phases all that in exquisite detail and the indian calendar was extraordinarily accurate accurate it was more accurate than today's calendar the january to december calendar the what's it called the Ju- it's on the julian calendar it's uh, the gregorian calendar i think it's called so india's ancient calendar was more accurate than the modern gregorian is it the gregorian calendar let me take a look at that gregorian calendar yeah it is the gregorian calendar so that's how it was so the depth of ancient knowledge the depth of knowledge ancient indians had was was vast it was very deep and all that knowledge was recorded in ancient uh, india's universities the universities whose libraries were burned down but before they were burned down the arabs 
etc the turks they there they sent some scholars to india who took away all the interesting information all the interesting texts which were then translated into arabic and uh, people like al khwarizmi etc are now credited as uh, great scientists and polymaths when they were simply translators and they never denied the fact that they were simply translators it is the europeans who have interpreted these people as great polymaths because they wrote about all kinds of topics astronomy physics uh, cosmology um, pharmacology toxicology linguistics and so on and so forth mathematics so one guy if he is able to write so much about these topics it's clear that he is simply a translator who is translating texts that were extracted out of india people like al khwarizmi and so on and so forth al biruni whatever whatever the no, the names are so in short in brief the answer to your question is that india had incredible depth of knowledge of astronomy i mean all the data that was taken out of india was then used to to formulate kepler's three law of 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 mo, kepler's three law right of planetary motion and so on so that these are the facts okay Tejas says, were the Mayans and the Aztecs somehow related to India? Well, from what I have seen, I have seen no hard evidence that uh, proves that they were in any way related to India. I am not saying it's not possible. It may be possible, but but so far from the data that we have, I don't know. I do not personally see a direct, uh, unambiguous link with India. There are certain practices, etc., that are similar to Indian practices. Some aspects of their culture seem to be, in some ways, uh, reminiscent of indian culture they also um, the peoples of central and southern america south america also had a very uh, a very good uh, calendar system they also were deep into astronomy and all that they had a very good understanding of the cycles of the moon and the stars and the planets and all that so so it's clear that they are also an ancient they were also an ancient civilization the civilization has been destroyed now but uh, it was an ancient civilization and uh, their calendar went back i don't know they did understand the precession of the equinoxes which is something that takes thousands of years so uh, it's clear from the data from the evidence that has survived that they were an ancient quite ancient civilization and some of their practices are reminiscent of indian traditions and culture but there is no unambiguous unequivocal linkage that proves some kind of relationship or contact with ancient india so that's what i can say about this okay shikhar saraf says uh, we always see the images of the galaxies and universe as a disk form horizontally but what's in the vertical space above and below uh, above and below in light years so let's let's uh, well, let's take a look at what shikhar is saying uh, let me again share the screen so let's see the universe universe and go to images so this is the cosmic microwave background radiation of the universe so this is the map of the distribution of the ancient radiation that's left over from the big bang uh, so this is one way of looking at it the other way is this which is actually makes more sense right so it's this is essentially how the satellite 
which satellite was it? Initially, it was the COBE, COBE satellite. Then you had the Planck satellite that measured uh, the CMBR, Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation. And this is the map that this satellite was, these satellites were able to produce. But there is nothing above or below. It is all, this entire uh, data is taken from our vantage point. It's actually a spherical uh, field of view that the satellite has and it measures everything and it is just represented in this format to make it easier for us to visualize the distribution of ancient radiation cmbr in the universe so it's kind of represented like this in this fashion it can also be represented as a sphere in this manner um so the point is there is nothing above or below. <laughs> we this is the observable universe. What we mean by the observable universe is that it is it it tells us how far we can see inside the universe. Uh, the observable universe has a radius. If you see this sphere, let's see this is the let's say this is the universe. So we are at the exact center of this sphere. It's not a it's not a disk. It's a sphere. It's a three-dimensional sphere. Think of it like a basketball, right? And we are at the exact center of it. And we can see that far, as far as the edge of this ball in the universe. And the distance between us and the edge is about 46.5 or so billion light years. That's how far we can see. It doesn't mean the universe is only this this large. It may be way, way, way larger than that, but we are unable to see beyond that because of the limitations of the speed of light and the uh, constraints imposed by the expansion of the universe. So this is how it is depicted. It looks like a disk, but it's actually <laughs> it's actually a three-dimensional sphere, and we are at the exact center of it, right? So there is nothing above or below. What lies beyond the boundaries of this? of this uh, representation is the unobservable universe because it is gone because we are uh, light doesn't travel that fast and the universe at, beyond these edges is expanding too fast for us to for the for the light from those regions to reach us so there may be a much larger portion of the universe that we are unable to see we don't know what its size is we don't know what its shape is we may never be able to see it and these boundaries are still re are, are always receding because the universe keeps on expanding uh, and the expansion is speeding up so we are inside this sphere we are at the very center of this three-dimensional ball and uh, above below it's all see th there is no above or below in space uh, when you are out there in space beyond the earth, there is no up or down, right, left. It's all depending on what orientation you have. Uh, we we, we uh, perceive the world as up and down because of the force of gravity that acts upon us, which uh, pulls us towards the center of the earth. So that's why we have the sensation of up and down, because if we throw something up, it will come down and we know where down is. In space, there is no gravity. There is no up and down. Right. So we are at the center of this thing of the observable universe and its shape is spherical perfectly spherical and there may be maybe much more beyond that that we are not aware of and we may never be able to observe those portions of the universe so that's what i can say about this in brief mr right trooper says what would happen if a black hole reaches near the earth at the same distance as the moon well if a black hole were to 
orbit around the earth at the same distance as the moon it would simply mean that we have a new satellite a new moon which happens to be a black hole it also depends on the size of the black hole i mean the kind of gravitational effects that we would experience would depend on the size the mass the mass of the black hole uh, a black hole with the same mass as the moon would essentially be a very small object you know uh, i'm not sure that what the calculation is the schwarzschild radius of that it would it would be something very small with the mass of the moon right uh, so it would not be visible but we would experience the uh, gravitational effects of that if it were a more massive black hole then it would uh, it would have a different kind of uh, a different set of gravitational effects on the earth uh, the tides would be disrupted and so on only if it is in orbit if it just passes by then the uh, orbit of the earth may be tugged in a certain direction temporarily or not temporarily or permanently essentially if it passes by if it passes close by and so on so it all depends on the dynamics whether it is simply passing by the earth at the distance uh, the same distance as the moon or does it come into orbit around the earth as the same distance of the moon and what is the mass of the black hole is it a small primordial microscopic kind of black hole or is it a more massive black hole stellar sized black hole that would disrupt the entire dynamics of the solar system if it were a stellar sized black hole stellar mass black hole and so on so it depends on the mass of the black hole the velocity trajectory of the black hole whether it comes into orbit around the earth whether it it pulls the earth into its orbit whether it uh, messes up the orbits of the other planets and so on and so forth so, so the, there's a lot of uh, parameters involved in this but if it were to simply go around the earth or go into orbit around the earth then our um, then the tidal cycles and other things on the earth would be disrupted you would see uh you would see maybe tsunamis or such things happening maybe the tectonics of the earth would may, may also be affected by that you may uh, see an increase in volcanism you may see an increase in earthquakes and so on and so forth so that's what i can say in brief about this this is by chanakya how do we get out of the defeatist mindset that permeates indians and how can we turn this around after hundreds of years of defeats how to gain the momentum to be glorious so i spoke about momentum yesterday uh we are currently experiencing a certain kind of momentum the past 1000 years have not been very good for india we resisted the invasions for a very long time but eventually the momentum went in the favor of the turks later the marathas were able to kick the turks out of power and regain most of india uh, establish hindavi swaraj all the way up to southern afghanistan but then they also made mistakes and again the momentum turned in the wrong direction and the british were able to take over india and today we are under a system of governance of education etc that is entirely 100% colonial in nature and that is essentially the root cause of the slave mindedness and defeatism that we see all around us people and it is not the fault of the people for holding these beliefs it is these beliefs are drilled into children's heads for years because of the education system that's what the education system does that's what the textbooks do that was that's what the teachers do the teachers themselves have the same mindset because they also went through the same education system and that is perpetuating this momentum we are not taught what is the national interest we are not taught what is leadership 
we are not taught the correct history of india we are taught to worship and glorify the invaders the barbarians who destroyed indian civilization uh, our institutions are all colonial in nature we have district collectors what are they collecting i ask what does a district collector collect the entire governance system is colonial in nature they have not even changed the names they still call these individuals collectors what are they collecting what does a district collector collect so unless we reform the the all, all of this we are going to persist in this defeatist mindset we are still going to going to feel that foreigners are superior to us indians have inferior genetics i don't blame anybody for holding these beliefs that white skin is superior in some way uh, if you speak english with a certain accent then you are more intelligent than other people have you noticed something in school if you ask a question to your teacher with with incorrect grammar your question will not be entertained right so they equate intelligence with good grammar in english and uh, and the right kind of accent if you speak english with a foreign accent then you are automatically uh regarded as being more intelligent than regular indians and so on and so forth so all these attitudes are creating this defeatist mindset that our culture is inferior our accents are 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 a sign of backwardness and all of these things so how do we change the momentum we have to reform the entire indian governance and education system we have to throw out the colonial constitution and create an and and build and draft a new constitution that is indian in nature indian in values indian in principles not western in its morality and values and principles and all that so that's what needs to happen all of our institutions need to be reformed i mean certain institutions are so deeply colonial they go on vacation i don't know how many months in a year and so on i i suppose you can understand what that is all of our other institutions i mean the the westminster parliamentary system that we have it is not suitable it is not suited for a subcontinent subcontinent sized country we had our own form of democracy which was superior we need to go back to that we need to reform the education system the education system is i mean somebody asked me in one of the comments i had seen they said that uh, students in one of the comments today itself i saw it that students only learn how to pass exams they don't really acquire any real knowledge and why is it so it's because if you don't pass your exam you're not allowed to progress to the next level in in the education system and unless you have a degree you will not get a job in the country so you have to the only skill you really acquire is how to pass exams and and do well in exams you don't really acquire any real knowledge or any real skills of any other kind in the education system and the history you're taught is all defeatist history that says that the foreigners were great and indians were were losers so all of this has to be changed when will it happen unless we change it if we don't change it we are never going to be uh, we are not never going to turn our mindset around i mean that's the thing right if you tell a child every single day of his or her life for the for the first 20 years of their life that you are uh, you come from a culture of losers <laughs> you come from a nation of losers your ancestors were losers your culture was inferior then that's what they will believe that's what they will believe and such people such kids can never be leaders if you believe i mean i mean remember remember what that guy imran khan niyazi said turko ne hum par 1000 saal tak raj kiya tha and he was proud of it 
Imran Khan Niyazi, the Prime Minister of Pakistan, was proud of the fact that Turks ruled over his people for I don't know how many years. He said thousand years or so. And by his people, I mean India. He was also, his ancestors were also Indians. So he was proud of the fact that a foreign race ruled over his people for centuries. This is the kind of leadership we are throwing up. I mean, Pakistan also is representative of the same mindsets that we have in India. And we have plenty of Indians who have the same mindset. And they feel proud of being, of the fact that the, the Turks and the British ruled over India for such a long time. Oh, the British gave us so much, so much, so much. They gave us railways. They gave us the judiciary. <laughs> they gave us the English language education. Without English, there is no science. Such utter nonsense. So unless we reform the system, nothing is going to change. So my question is, when is the reform starting? When are we going to start the reforms? So that's what needs to happen in brief. Okay, what... Uh, <laughs> I see a very good question. <laughs> uh, Tejas says, why did the WHO skip skip one of the Greek letters of the alphabet while naming the new COVID variant? So let's take a look at the Greek alphabet, shall we? Okay, Greek alphabet. Let's take, uh, okay, let me... Yeah, here we are, the Greek alphabet, and uh, let's find it. All right. Where is Kai? Okay. So they have been naming the various COVID variants after letters of the Greek alphabet because everything has to be Eurocentric. So alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, all that. And I think the latest variant they had named was named the new, new variant. And uh, what comes after new? It is the letter Xi, Xi, which is spelled as Xi in the Latin alphabet or the English alphabet, Xi. Now, Xi is also the name of the great prime, <laughs> the great Chinese emperor, Mr. Xi Jinping. And that's why the WHO skipped this letter altogether and named the new variant Omicron instead of naming it Xi or Kai. Xi, I think, Xi. So it is clearly because of Chinese pressure that they have done this because to name the new variant the Xi variant, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the emperor of China, Mr. Xi Jinping, would not like it. And it looks like the WHO has now been entirely taken over by the Chinese. I mean, the Chinese fund don't quite give give it quite a lot of funding. The Americans are the major funders of the WHO and the UN. But clearly the Chinese have way more influence now in the UN and the WHO than the Americans. It's a complete takeover. They have infiltrated every nook and cranny of this organization. And uh, you will see that the Officials, the highest ranking officials of the WHO, etc., they are so deferential towards China and they will never entertain anything that uh, the Chinese would find offensive, like uh, like even mentioning the name of Taiwan, right? So that tells you what a great job the Chinese have done of taking over this international organization. So that is the reason why the WHO skipped one of the letters for the first time of the Greek, Greek alphabet in naming the new COVID variant. It is 
out of deference to the emperor of china mr xi jinping incredible Akshay Prakash says, why is the Indian Navy being so ignored all the time? How can we strengthen the Indian Navy and how can it be how can we increase the rate of increasing military weapons? Well, I would not uh, say that uh, the Navy is being ignored. I would not say that it's being ignored. But uh, it is not being developed to the extent that it should be developed. Uh, we do see the regular induction of new Scorpion submarines into the Indian navy uh, recently the new aircraft carrier is being trialed it's it's uh, the sh- the sea trials have started so these things are happening but i don't know who m- makes the decisions see let's take a look at the map let me open the map one second let me share that uh here's the map here is the map and uh, this is the indian ocean region as you can see india is blessed by the gods it has such an incredibly long coastline it practically dominates the entire indian ocean region it uh, dominates the two choke points uh, which uh, three choke points actually the persian gulf the uh, the strait of hormuz over here then you have uh, the the djibouti strait over here and the malacca strait over here so india is in a position to close off any of these choke points if it so wishes if it has a powerful navy and in this in the case if it wants to uh, impose a blockade on any of these choke points it will need numbers you need large numbers of of uh, naval vessels to do that and currently the strength in numbers of the indian navy isn't isn't anything great you know and i know somebody or the other will say no you are wrong we have so many ships i mean actually take a look at how many warships we have out of those numbers the actual number of warships is is quite less we have uh, other kinds of ships like uh, tankers and various other mine sweepers maybe a couple of mine sweepers but how many destroyers do we have we have just a handful of destroyers how many missile boats do we have smaller ships very few how many corvettes do we have very few how many submarines do we have i think 15 or 16 active submarines for a country of india's size which calls the indian ocean region its strategic backyard you need a far larger navy and the problem is we are investing in enormous ships like aircraft carriers there is a very old saying in the military that quantity has a Uh, quantity has a quality of its own you may want to build ships of the best quality which will cost a billion dollars or you can instead of doing that invest in a hundred cheaper ships the total cost will be a hundred uh, will be a billion dollars but each of these ships can carry a few missiles and that can totally change the dynamics of the indian ocean region if india does that but india is not doing that we are investing in these big 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 ships you know which say hey look at this big target aircraft carriers and all that india should invest in cheaper ships lots of cheaper ships invest in quantity forget about the quality right now i'm not saying uh, <laughs> invest in low quality ships i'm saying invest in large numbers of ships 
and you don't need big ships you can, a missile boat will do so these are the things that need to happen if you want to dominate the indian ocean region you need numbers you need quantity that's what the chinese are doing quantity they are they are churning out ships like sausages in in a factory so india also needs to do that that's how we can strengthen the indian navy i would say build lots of missile boats small ships that carry two or three missiles two or three brahmos missiles and fill up the indian ocean with these ships one ship need not cost more than 30 40 million dollars so you can build 100 of these for just 4 billion dollars and that that will that is the price of one aircraft carrier so that's what we should do and we should also have lots of submarines 13 or 14 or 15 16 20 submarines is simply not enough for a nation of india's size with the kind of uh, strategic advantage we have potential advantage advantage we have so we are the indian government is in a way strengthening the indian navy we are trialing the new aircraft carrier we are inducting submarines from time to time but it is not happening at the pace that is required and india is investing in big 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 ships instead of investing in large numbers of smaller ships which are equally dangerous so i think we need a change in mindset the problem is that the leadership will have their own perception of the world what what really is needed is lots of young leaders who see the world from a 21st century viewpoint not from the cold war viewpoint you know but uh, so there are challenges i hope that something will be done about this and that's what i can say so it's a good question okay let's mm some more questions okay boan says will the majority of the population of the world is it going to be unemployed around the globe due to rising technology there is certainly a possibility there's going to be more unemployment in the next 5 to 10 years we are going to see the emergence of the metaverse we're going to see uh ai become even more powerful everything will be automated more and more uh un- low skill jobs will become automated robotics is already there it's taken over the assembly lines and everything you don't need fa- um, uh, lots of workers in factories anymore much of the work can be done by uh, assembly robots and all that and much of the unskilled or low skilled work can now be automated using apps and software and ai for instance in indian metropolitan cities you still if you want to buy a train ticket you still have to go physically to the railway station stand in a goddamn long queue and uh, pay the money and 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 uh, buy the ticket that is going to be automated very soon so so all these jobs will soon be eliminated they will not be required anymore so what's going to be important in the future is that you need to be really good at high technology you need to be comfortable with learning new technology quickly and new skills quickly it's all going to be about skills and certain specific skills are going to be in high demand uh and all other skills or or general skills etc will no longer be needed so the indian education system throws out students by the million students who have no skills whatsoever you may have a degree in computer science yeah a masters degree in computer science 
but when you go and actually get a job you will have to be taught everything from scratch because you the only skill you you really learned in your in acquiring your master's degree is how to pass exam how to write write long essays and yeah there may be one or two small projects you have to do but those are worthless actually so you don't really learn any real skills in the indian education system and in the next 5 to 10 years all of these degrees are going to be worthless scraps of paper today as of today the indian uh, private institutions the private companies etc they still value degrees very much if you have a degree then you will get a job but in the future that's not going to be the case in the us you have people like elon musk who are now saying we don't care about your degree show us your skills if you apply for a job in tesla or wherever in elon musk's companies they are simply going to put th- put you through a number of coding tests and other interview questions and you will have to prove that you have the right skills even if you don't even have a college degree or even a high school degree it won't matter as long as you have the skills so that's the direction in which silicon valley is going that's the direction in which companies like tesla are going sooner or later it's going to happen in india it is going to be sooner rather than later especially in newer startups newer unicorns the older companies that are run by old men they are going to stay the same their mindset will stay the same and they are soon going to go out of existence it is the new agile nimble companies that will put more emphasis on skills rather than on degrees so people who rely on degrees are going to be jobless in the future wake up my friends listen to what i'm saying acquire skills acquire skills that are going to be of value in the next 10 20 years that's how you are going to be remain relevant in 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 the world and be valuable drivers of change so that's the situation we are going towards lots of people are going to be unemployed especially in poorer countries low income countries third world countries much of africa maybe all of africa may uh fall prey to this much of india will fall prey to this because even today as of today in 2021 it's all about degrees 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 study 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 pass exam pass pass exam pass exam acquire a degree go on to the next level do the same thing repeat the process at the end of your academic career you have a masters degree or a mba or something like that or maybe a phd which actually is not an indicator of any kind of ability right So yes people are going to be unemployed is going to be a big problem people are talking about universal basic income which <laughs> in my opinion is not the right solution so yeah we are heading towards a period of maybe of increasing turmoil and the social strife possibly in the future as this becomes more widespread so i would urge you to uh, that i'm not saying don't acquire degrees certainly you should acquire degrees because as of today degrees in the next 5 years may still be valuable if you want a job today if you then you will need a degree but in the future it's going to be about skills so spend some extra time acquiring skills valuable skills you know what those skills are go for that Okay, let's take some more questions. What do we have? What do we have? What's my take on the flat earth theory? It's wrong. We know it's wrong. What other take do you expect me to have? Um uh, Shrimad Bhagavad Gita, I am This is the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad it's see, first of all it's not the Gita. Everyone says Gita, Gita, Gita. It's not Bhagavad Gita. It's Bhagavad Gita. 
the song of the lord the song of god it's bhagavad geet it's not bhagavad gita so first of all uh, let me clarify that and secondly i don't know if the bhagavad geet speaks about the the geometry of uh, the three dimensional geometry of the earth the bhagavad geet was about uh, waking that guy arjun up who had uh, decided not to fight so it's it, it was more about that about your what doing your duty and forgetting about the uh, what the the results of the actions do your duty and uh, don't abdicate your duty that's what uh, lord krishna was telling arjun so i think that's what it was about i don't think it was about the geometry of the earth the geography of the earth so so i don't know what to make of that if there is anything uh, relevant to the shape of the earth in the bhagavad gita but please remember it's not the bhagavad gita it's the bhagavad gita gita okay hmm tejas says is there any genetic proof that the yamnaya people had indian ancestry the yamnaya haplogroup so the haplogroup the y y chromosomal haplogroup uh, that most the overwhelming majority of the yamnaya skeletons carry is r1b r1b is a descendant of r1 r1 is a descendant of r and r eventually has f as its ancestor so all of these haplogroups are indian origin haplogroup they evolved they emerged in the indian subcontinent including r and r1 right so the yamnaya were of indian origin now the, the the other question people ask is that if the yamnaya were of indian origin why don't we find the r1b haplogroup in india actually we do find it in small numbers not in large numbers we do find it in india now the thesis the claim of the aryan invasion theory is that the yamnaya were the aryan invaders who came into india and populated and seeded india with their genes so then the question is why don't we have a widespread distribution of r1b in india instead we find only a few traces of r1b in india just a few percent maybe 2 3% possibly uh, i don't know have the exact numbers but it's a very small distribution uh, of r1b in india we do find it but not in large numbers what actually most likely happened was that at some point in time one clan one group of people one extended family of people were, uh, went out of india for whatever reason maybe it happened during the dasharaj dash the, the the battle of the 10 kings or maybe at some later date and they went north west of india out of india they settled down in central asia or somewhere like that and eventually they became the so called yamnaya who invaded uh, europe and changed the gen- genetics forever that's why we find r1b which is widespread in europe not in india but we do find evidence of r1b in india in small numbers so there is genetic proof they are trying to deny it they are trying to deny it it's not going to work the genetic evidence is there they are trying to interpret it in different ways but the most parsimonious and straightforward explanation is that the yamnaya went out the ancestors of the yamnaya were indians it was one group or one clan of ancient indians who went out of india settled down somewhere in central asia and from there at a later point in time their descendants invaded europe and gave rise to the modern european population so that is the most 
parsimonious explanation in genetics the most parsimonious explanation is the most acceptable explanation it's the most straightforward explanation the shortest distance between two points is a straight line not something like that right that's how it works okay let's take some more questions Shikhar says, I have read in NCERT that the Indian constitution is one of the most successful constitutions in the world. How true is the statement? Okay, so there is a statement which says that the Indian constitution is the most successful constitution or one of the most successful constitutions in the world. Okay, so then the question we have to ask is, what is the measure of the success of a constitution? Success has to be measurable what is the measure there is no measure of the success of a constitution just because it has been in force for 70 years doesn't mean it's successful look at the situation in india today 70 years after independence india is still a low income nation right india is still well technically a third world country so is that i mean that 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 is statistics that we have what is the uh, per capita gdp in india it's very low india is still uh, one of it's, it's still not in the top 3 in the world in, in terms of uh, overall gdp so where is the measure where is the evidence of the success of the constitution a constitution is supposed to drive a country forward and and help it succeed and prosper the indian constitution has not done that if you look at the uh, so, so I mean, the, the point I'm trying to make is that there is no evidence, measurable, quantifiable evidence, that the Indian constitution is successful. They, they have not defined what they mean by success. It is just a subjective statement they have made to brainwash kids. The Indian constitution is the most, I mean, it's, it's hundreds of pages long. Nobody, even constitution ex constitutional experts are unable to agree about it. If you ask two so-called constitutional experts about the interpretation of some clause, both will typically disagree about it. There are, it is so subjective, it is so open to interpretation, it is so confusing, so convoluted, that I don't know what purpose it serves. Ask anybody you know, have you read the entire Indian constitution? And I know what the answer is going to be. Ask them if you have read 10% of the Indian constitution in, in depth. I know what the answer is going to be. Nobody reads it because nobody understands it. And um, that's the thing, right? So it is not the constitution that India needs. India needs to revert to its civilizational roots. India needs a new constitution that is rooted in India's civilizational roots, values, and principles. This, the constitution that we have, is a foreign imposition upon India. The so-called constituent assembly did not represent the people of India. It was not an elected body. It was an appointed body. It was, it was, it was appointed from the results of the 1946, I think, election, which, which, uh, in which less than 13% of India's adults were able to participate. So it is in no way representative of the actual will of the people at that time. And even and some other members of this constituent assembly were simply appointed 
from various royal so-called princely states and all many of whom were simply british puppets so uh, it it was an illegitimate body the constitution has been imposed upon the people of india by saying we the people when it does not represent we the people and it was never ratified by the people of india for instance when the us constitution was drafted it was put to a vote every male every white male in america was given the choice of saying yes i accept it or no i reject it and only when it was uh, accepted by a majority of the white men in america only then did it come to power of course the women were excluded from the votes from the voting and the native americans and blacks were also excluded so it is a white men's constitution but at least there was a democratic process a partial democratic process when the indian constitution was drafted why was it not put to a vote why were the people of india not given the option of rejecting or accepting the constitution it was never done and therefore it is illegitimate it is undemocratically imposed upon india so i don't see first of all how this constitution is legitimate i don't see secondly how it represents the will of the people of india and thirdly i don't see what in what way it is successful yeah you could say it has succeeded in keeping the country down that is the success i would say so that's what i can say about this sarcastic junkies <laughs> nice name brother it says please elaborate on dr homiji baba's death assassination assassination conspiracy so dr baba was the one of the primary scientists in the indian nuclear program um uh, and he died in a mysterious plane crash in the swiss alps or the italian alps somewhere between switzerland and italy let's go to the map let's take a look at the map let's go westwards we have switzerland here let's take a look at the satellite imagery so this is switzerland and uh, yes so this is the region where france switzerland and italy converge it is somewhere around here that the plane crash occurred high in the alps in the mountains over here and for many decades there was no investigation done over here the uh, wreckage was never investigated nobody went there to recover the wreckage or to recover the bodies and that's very strange the indian government also never insisted that anything should be done the indian government just accepted this as something that's well par for the course okay margia marnendo that sort of attitude so uh, i have heard rumors i don't know how true they are that this was a targeted assassination it was fine to kill lots of people as long as this indian scientist also died i don't know how true or false that is but it's certainly something that i've heard on the grapevine you could say there is no confirmation of this but it is certainly possible that this was a targeted assassination there are many such uh, possibilities the other possibility is that the the that the death of uh, prime minister shastri lal bahadur shastri may also have been a targeted assassination it was very suspicious the way he died and the fact that there was no autopsy and so on so dr baba's death also quite possibly was a targeted assassination
Okay, this is a question by Aditi. The Yakut people in Sakha, Russia are Turkic. What's their culture and beliefs like? How did Turkic people make Russia as their home? Are the Turks and Mongols of similar ethnicity? Is it different from Chinese? Why do some races look sibling but far from... Gen- okay, but they have different genetics. Okay, I get the question. Let's go back to the good old map. So this is the map. Let's go to the Sakha Republic, which is somewhere here. If you can see my mouse pointer, northeast of present-day Russia. Let's take a look at that. Sakha Republic, Russia. So as you can see, the, this shaded region in, in, in red is this uh, is the Sakha Republic of Russia. The people who live there are of Turkic ethnicity. Uh, the Russians used to call them Tatars or something or the Yakut people. Yeah, the Yakut people. That's right. What's written here. So the question is, how did such Turkic people make Russia as their home? <laughs> well, that's a good question. The, the answer is that this was never Russia. This was always their home. And the Russians made this part of Russia. Okay, so these people, the the Yakut people and other so-called Tatar people and so on, they have lived in this region, in these regions, Siberia, etc. For, I suppose, thousands of years. Even before the Rus or the Russians emerged as a separate uh, distinct ethnicity. What eventually happened is that the Russians expanded. See, see Moscow is, is, is here. So this is the heartland of Russia. That's where the that's the Slavic heartland. And the Russians expanded eastwards from, from there in the past three, four hundred years. And eventually they reached all the way to the eastern coast of Eurasia and they even colonized Alaska in North America. So it is Russian colonization that ensured that the Yakut people became part of uh, their territory became part of Russia. It was not the other way around that the Yakut people migrated to something that was already Russia. So that's what happened. It is Russian colonization that ensured that all of this region became part of the Russian Empire. Uh, the Turks and the Mongols are of similar ethnicity. Yeah, I think they have similar. They have the same origins, which goes back about two, two and a half thousand years. Uh, their ancestors were the Hunnic people, who gave rise to these two ethnicities, who are now separate: the Mongols and the Turks. Uh, they have the same culture, the same beliefs, the same uh, so-called religion, if you want to call it religion, which is Tengrism, which is a polytheistic religion whose major deity, two deities are the Sky Father and the Earth Mother, Tengri and Umai. And there are multi- multiple other deities and gods and goddesses and sp- spirits and so on in this belief system. It's a polytheist, polytheistic belief system. So this was the common uh, culture of the Turks and the Mongols, that is the Hunnic peoples, and slowly these became separate. The Turks eventually uh, adopted Islam, and that was the history, in short, of these two ethnicities. Yes, they are different from the Chinese. The Han Chinese are different, are a different ethnicity or a different uh, people from the Hunnic peoples. Uh, Why do some races look siblings, but they are different in genetics? It's because they all... uh, lived in similar environments. So if you go in the far north of Asia, of Eurasia, you will find that there's a lot of snow there, a lot of ice. 
and the sunlight is very harsh there it reflects off the snow and it can cause snow blindness if too much light goes into the eyes and therefore the peoples who lived in all of these regions they developed smaller eyes to ensure that they were not blinded by the reflection of sunlight from the snow and that's why they look similar but they clearly have different ethnicities if we do a genetic uh, analysis of their ethnicities you will find uh, different haplogroups uh, which i have not gone into personally in detail but i expect you will find genetic differences between these people so i hope that answers these questions good question all right some other questions let me see if i have some other questions okay that's this is a question from yesterday's uh, list that i was not able to take up i'll take this one right now this is by subhanu the media is considered to be the fourth pillar of democracy but indian media is now divided into two groups the so called godi media and the so called seculars each having their own agendas propagandas bias etc what is my view about this my view is very clear the media has never been impartial the me- there is no such thing as the fourth fourth pillar of democracy they have created this uh, uh this perception to increase their importance the media has always been a tool of propaganda in the past we did not know about this because there was no social media to expose them but they have always been a major component of the propaganda machinery of whoever is in power of the establishment it's always been that way they have never been impartial they have never been un- unbiased they have never been the fourth pillar of democracy they have always been one of the major pillars of propaganda the media worldwide including the us media including the indian media the indian media for decades was simply a mouthpiece of the uh, establishment the major political party that was in power since the british raj times the media has always been a mouthpiece of that political party today you will see you have we have seen the emergence of a different kind of media a more nationalistic media and they are the ones that uh, the so called uh, the leftists and uh, anti nationals call them the godi media or whatever and the other side calls the other people seculars so it's always been that way in the past it was all monochromatic just one version of the truth was accepted the official establishment congress party version of the truth during the nehruvian regime during the uh, later congress regimes but in recent times with the emergence of social media it's become possible to have media outlets without investing a lot of money and that's why you have these newer more nimble more lightweight uh, uh, media companies that have come up and these are now labeled as godi media uh <laughs> so it's impossible for any media organization to operate without bias almost impossible i am not saying it's 100% impossible it's possible but uh, practically it's never happened in in real life the real world operates in with you <laughs> under different principles and so the media has never been a, a pillar of democracy it's always been a pillar of the establishment and uh, so that's my view about this the best thing today is social media even social media is now taking on flavors 5 years ago social media had empowered the people of india it had given the common man and woman and child a voice for the first time in a thousand years but now as you know there is a lot of censorship on social media 
and again social media has become the social media companies giants have become tools of uh, certain political ideologies i think you know who they are so that's how it is so it's never going to be the case that the media is going to be unbiased that it will never have agenda agendas it will always have agendas it will always try to promote propaganda and so on that is simply the nature of the world and that's how it is okay let us take some other questions Okay, Mahakal says, according to the Delhi University books, Marxism is against bourgeoisie and pro-proletariat, which makes it seem pro-social welfare. But I say Marxism is all about power in just, in which only a handful of people uh, benefit. Please elaborate. See, Marxism is something that sounds very intellectual. They have a very interesting intellectual framework with all kinds of wonderful, well-defined and intelligent-sounding terms. The bourgeoisie, the proletariat, the um, the I mean, they have all these terms, and it sounds like they have it all figured out. But what actually happens is that Marxism wants to make everybody equal, but some people are more equal than others and they have more privileges than others. Just look at the history of the countries where Marxist systems were implemented. It's all it's it's all staring you in the face. The USSR was a Marxist socialist experiment. Right? It was a communist country. What happened in the USSR? The ordinary people of the USSR all had to live in communes there was no private property. They were all poor. But a very small number of people, the Politburo, they lived in ultra-luxurious, they lived uh, lives of extreme luxury and all the power was concentrated with them. Because they knew the real nature of Marxism and they knew how to use it to gain power and to retain power. Look at communist China. The same thing happened with the Chinese Communist Party. Look at Cuba, look at uh, countries like Angola, look at the other countries. So it's if you look at it and examine it uh, objectively, you will see that the people who benefit from Marxism, and what do I mean by benefit? Power. The people who come to power, the people who, who retain the political power in a Marxist system are a very, very, very small number of people. The so-called Politburo of the Communist Party, which is in power. And that's how it always is. But they they, def- they justify what they are doing by saying the right things. We are all about equality. We are all about uh, prosperity. We want everybody to be equal. We want everything to be social welfare based. We are against the bourgeoisie who are the evil bloodsuckers, the vampires. The proletariat are the one- workers. They are the ones who should be empowered. But the real pow- empowering happens of themselves. The real and and they call it the dictatorship of the proletariat, it, which which implicitly gives them the right to rule as the dictatorship of the proletariat of the proletariat because we represent the proletariat. We are the ones who represent them, not you, 
not anybody else but we represent the proletariat who decides that they decide it so it's all about power in the end and it's always a small number of people who really understand what marxism is who benefit from marxism okay let's take some other questions <clears throat> What do I think of freeing temples from state control? They have to be freed from state control. This is non-negotiable. The state has no business interfering in any any uh, religion. The constitution is supposed to be secular, right? So why do uh, why 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 are temples the I mean why are Hindu institutions the only institutions that are under state control and, and they are being stolen from? Why is that so? So it it clearly shows you that the Indian state is a Hindu phobic apartheid state. They are controlling Hindu temples. They are stealing all the wealth of the temples and using it for their secular purposes, whatever those purposes are. So this is unacceptable and it has to end. This has to go away. And I don't think that bringing in a new law or something will do it. What needs is we need a new constitution. Start from the basics. That's what needs, that's what needs to happen. Okay, what else do we have? Lots of questions. Okay, Rana Jargis says, what's the major difference between communism and socialism? Is socialism ca closer to capitalism? Uh, communism is hard socialism. So socialism is soft communism. It's essentially the same thing. The USSR which was a communist country, was the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. So uh, socialism is kind of a little bit gentler, more moderate. Uh, they will not force you to give up all your private property. But overall, the laws and the rules and the way the system is implemented is essentially going to, to impose the same kind of end results upon you. In India, I think uh, private property is not regarded as a fundamental right. It is not recognized as a fundamental right in the Indian constitution or laws. Private property in India. So that is the uh, consequence of being a socialist country. So socialism and communism is more or less the same thing. It, 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 uh, it brings about the same kind of end result, uh, overall poverty of the country, uh, the worship of mediocrity, the demonization of, of quality and talent and exceptionalism and all that. So I'm not saying that that uh, capitalism is good or something. Capitalism is responsible for the complete destruction of the environment and of the earth. The unbridled pursuit of quarter upon quarter profits, endless infinite profits on a finite planet is only going to end up ruining the, ruining the planet. So capitalism is very different from socialism or communism, but communism and socialism are more or less different flavors of the same thing. Parvinder Kumar says, as a student, we are taught to cram out the syllabus, but how can a student like me start exploring on my own and where to start? Ask yourself, what are you curious about? What are you interested about? What things interest you? What are you passionate about? and then look for information online. Everything is available for, for free online, either on YouTube or various websites. So let's say you are in, interested in, I don't know, uh, 
let's say you're interested in technology there is so much information available about technology or or or, or how to learn skills in technology you can uh, you can access entire courses professional courses online on youtube on open courseware websites and so on and so forth so it's all about pursuing your curiosity following your curiosity following your interests and you will have to spend extra time doing that because most of your time will be consumed by your academic coursework memorizing 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 but try and find some more time outside of that to pursue your interests and acquire some real world skills so start online all the information is available online teach yourself how to search for information online that is the most value one of the most valuable skills you can acquire today how to search for information online because the information is there today in the internet age everything is available online some things you may have to pay for but you can ignore those things because the same information will be will be available elsewhere for free so check it out teach yourself how to search for information effectively quickly online and then go for it and learn whatever you need to learn or wish to learn okay why does india not buy the f35 fighter jet it's a complex situation first of all it's an extremely expensive fighter jet you may have to spend more than 100 million dollars on just one jet so if you want to buy 10 fighter planes f35 fighter planes you may have to spend more than a billion dollars and then you may have to uh, you will have to sign various agreements with the us uh data sharing agreements which may impose certain costs on you uh data costs you may have to reveal certain information that you may, you may not want to really really uh, reveal to the us uh it kind of makes you a us satellite state and then they will prevent you from buying technology and weapons from other countries because those may interfere with the f35 system the electronic spectrum and all that and it's not really it may not even be a very good fighter jet jet you know uh i would say that instead of see for the cost of one f35 fighter jet you may be able to acquire five or six um, more cheaper fighter jets what is the cost of a tejas plane let me see let me try and see what is the cost of the lca tejas So this is the LCA Tejas. What is the cost? I'm wondering what is the cost of this plane. So it's about twenty-six million for the Mark One plane, and about forty million for the Mark uh, for the full operational clearance Mark One plane. So for the price of one. uh f35 you will be able to get three lca tejas planes and it's not the only jet that's under de- under development we are developing uh multiple jets the uh, the tejas mark 2 the twin engine deck back uh, deck based fighter the amca also the uh, next generation plane and so on so i think it is much more worthwhile for india to invest in its own fighter jet program instead of buying this f35 fighter jet which may not even be a very very good fighter plane it's not proven in combat 
it's had a very very long tedious development cycle lots of problems in the development and uh, it's had lots of hurdles lots of problems so i am not sure how good this fighter jet is it is the most expensive fighter jet program in human history most likely but i'm not sure how good it is so i think it's best for india to develop its own technology develop a family of fighter jets of its own and that would be the best uh best course of action for the indian military there are multiple reasons right like price and all that so i think that's what needs to happen Okay, Karan Rao says, what will be the geopolitical situation of the Indian subcontinent and the world at large in the coming 50 years based on historical evidence, as it is said that history repeats itself. So it is uh, it is always uh, risky to make predict- predictions. Predictions have a tendency of making you look stupid in the long run. Uh, so what I would say is that if you look at how things are moving right now on the geopolitical chessboard, it looks like we are uh, looking at the 1930s all over again. And China is now behaving like uh, Germany was behaving in the 1930s. You know, becoming a powerful economy, uh, investing a huge amount of money in the, milit- in the military, bullying other nations and all that. So the Chinese are, are exhibiting the same behavioral patterns today. They are trying to upset the apple cart. They want to um, displace the US as the preeminent geopolitical superpower in the world and so on. So it, and right now the Chinese economy is kind of slowing down. It's grinding to a halt, which may send the Chinese leadership into panic mode and they may try to do something silly or stupid. So what could happen in the next five to 10 years is we may have war in Asia. It's quite possible. They may try and grab Taiwan. I don't know how the Americans will react. Will they try to stop the Chinese or will they just give up? If they give up, then they're done. If the Americans don't fight, don't resist a Chinese attempt to take over Taiwan, then their status as the world's only superpower will evaporate overnight. So if the Chinese try this, you may have war or even World War Three in Asia. If the Chinese don't do that, then they will try to slowly, slowly creep forward and bully all the other nations around them, grab territory. If they cross India's red lines, then we may have war between India and China. So there are multiple possibilities. It all depends on how, on how the Chinese behave. When it comes to India, the Indian subcontinent, uh, India needs to once and for all end the terrorist threat that comes from china from 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 pakistan all the time as long as you have pakistan and the isi and the pakistan army in power on the western border india will never have peace the only solution is to balkanize pakistan hopefully peacefully i have nothing against the people of pakistan the enemy is the isi and the pakistani army the generals who have taken this entire country hostage and they are using it to empower and enrich themselves using India as the pretext that India is our mortal enemy. India is not the mortal enemy. The real enemy of the Pakistani people is the ISI and the Pakistan army. So India needs to ensure that this threat is dealt with 
so hopefully in the next 5 to 10 years we will see a solution to the pakistan problem then we will have peace in the western border then we can deal with the chinese threat so it's not as simple as i make it sound uh, it's all interconnected the pakistani army and isi is propped up by the chinese so it's a complex and fast evolving situation much of it will depend on what the chinese moves are in the next 5 to 10 years uh so if the chinese uh succeed in their ambition of displacing the us as the superpower then it's going to be a chinese world for the next 50 to 100 years if india emerges as a real power in the next 10 20 years economic and military power then the world may be more balanced so it also depends on what india does and what kind of leadership india will have over the next 10 20 years so whom will the indians elect in the next election a lot depends on that if you elect certain kinds of people then india will go backwards it will go back to the nehruvian era so one hopes that doesn't happen so there's a lot of parameters in this so i can't really predict what can happen what will happen i can say what could happen i would like to see india emerge as an economic and military great power in the next 20 years and it has to start happening in the next 5 to 10 years otherwise we will be too far behind the chinese and they may be able to have their way with asia and the world so i can't <laughs> say in detail exactly what will happen but these are some of the things that could possibly happen i would like to see india emerge as a major power as a superpower in the next 20 years it is certainly possible india has the potential the talent the resources to become a superpower in, in beginning in the next 20 years so it all depends on the leadership and what decisions and actions they take rishikesh sharma sharma says how do i learn leadership well leadership you learn with experience uh, of course it helps if there is a good mm, a good uh, book or course about leadership what leadership actually is but there is no such book available anywhere there are books on business leadership and things like that but that's not real leadership business leadership is just how to manage people that's all it is actually and how to take people in the right direction and make them work for your goals and how to make them invested in your goals but that is not real leadership real leadership is something entirely different real leadership is selfless service without anything without expecting anything in return and not just that much more than that so there are lots of aspects to leadership of what of what qualities a leader should develop within himself or herself to reach the position of a real leader uh maybe i should go into that in the future make a separate video or series of videos about that but as far as i know there is no real uh book that explains these things there is no course online or any academic course that explains or teaches what leadership actually is so what you can do to learn leadership is ask yourself who are the leaders i admire ask yourself who are the leaders i admire in the past 100 years past 1000 2000 years globally and then 
study their lives and their actions. So that is one way of understanding what leadership is. What were their actions? What were their objectives? Whom did they serve? What values and principles did they hold dear? What were the red lines? What were the strategic tactics? If you if you study all that, then you may be able to uncover the patterns. So these are some of the ways of studying leadership. And uh, yeah, that's what you should do. Okay. What else do we have? Okay, let me take some older questions. This is by Mighty Ashish. Is reservation right or wrong? Well, reservations have good intentions, I should say. I should say. The intention is to uh, give people a better chance at life, people who have traditionally uh, been under underprivileged. Now, the way it has been implemented is just wrong. It is done on the basis of so-called caste. So certain... Uh, uh, communities that are classified as scheduled castes and scheduled tribes and whether other backward task castes or classes whatever OBCs and so on they have been uh, given reserve they are given reservations in the Indian system in, in the in the academic system in schools and colleges and universities and jobs in the government sector and so on and so forth so it is all done on the basis of of your birth not on the basis of your financial condition the problem is that many people who are born in these so-called categories, they may be financially quite well off. And there may be people who are born in general categories who may be financially destitute. But because they don't come under this this so, uh, whatever category, that's why they are not given uh, the benefits of reservations. So what really needs to happen is that you should give people uh, reservations or, or financial help based on financial status only not on the basis of whatever is the is the category that they are born under then you will have actual uh, actual uh, equality of opportunity for everybody the what what they are trying to achieve is equality of opportunity you can never have equality of outcome see what is the difference between equality of opportunity and equality of outcome let me show you that uh, let me bring this so this is called equality of opportunity everybody starts from the same place equality of outcome means everybody finishes at the same place that is impossible and that is wrong so what we need to achieve is giving everybody the same equal opportunities of starting from the same place in time and in place. So if everybody gets the same education and everybody gets the same access to education, that is equality of opportunity. And from there, they can progress as, as per their aptitude and abilities. So the what needs to happen is the people who are financially backward, they should be given financial support and everybody should be given the same education. So the way to solve this is to make education freely accessible to everybody. Make education free for all. 
today what you have is that we have we are seeing the commercialization of education which is just wrong it should not happen in a civilized society so reservations may have the right intent but the way they are implemented is terrible it's causing more divisions in society it is creating more problems than solving problems so the way it needs to be implemented is 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 very different from the way it's being done today education should be free for all and so should healthcare in a civilized society education and healthcare should be free for all all citizens okay let us take a few more questions okay i'm trying to find i saw something it disappeared <laughs> just a second okay let's take this question uh, rohan says i heard an update about india's autonomous underwater vehicle a drone submarine a project that is jointly being done with larson and tobro what are your views on this i think it's a good thing uh autonomous vehicles whether these are aerial vehicles or underwater vehicles are the future uh, of of milit- of the military of of warfare so india needs to be proactive in investing in these technologies and i haven't uh, read this news i have i am not aware of this in great detail i am aware that some such project is underway what we need is we need multiple such projects underway why develop only one vehicle when you can develop an entire class or an entire family of vehicles the chinese have developed hundreds of autonomous aerial vehicles drones they have been doing this for the past 10 15 20 years we only have a couple of such projects in india the rustom drone or whatever it is and i'm not sure if anything else is being developed maybe things are being de- developed that are under wraps which would be a good thing my view is very clear we need to invest heavily in these technologies the technologies of the future what india is right now doing is trying to catch up with the technologies of the 1990s and 2000s which is good but we need to invest more in this so that we can start developing the technologies of the future which is autonomous vehicles drones and all that so if this is happening it is a very good thing i'm very happy about this we need more emphasis on underwater drones aerial drones robotics ai augmented reality and all these associated 21st century next generation technologies Chanakya says what happens when what has been long a soft state tries to become a hard state and the setbacks it can face from its own people does it cause a chaotic period not necessarily so what we mean by a soft state is a state that does not pursue its national interest which is india india is like a punching bag uh, india has been for most of its post 1947 history been a punching bag the pakistanis keep attacking india in various ways and india just keeps absorbing the punches without making them 
pay a heavy price for it so india has always been a soft state india always emphasizes on soft power which is nonsense india has not developed its hard power to the extent that it should have <clears throat> so india meets the definition of a soft state it is likely that today in 2021 november india may be in the process of making a transition from a soft state to a hard state it is possible such things are done quietly in secrecy and so it is a good thing what happens when you do this it, it is done quietly in secrecy you do not reveal what you are doing you do not you do not reveal your plans to the world you do it quietly and you announce it when it's a fait accompli when it's done so what are the setbacks it can face from its own people when you have when you have uh, the old establishment which made india a soft state then they will try to resist any attempt for the state to harden itself and then they have an entire ecosystem the media and the professors the academia who will try and portray this as fascism as bad they will write articles against this in in global especially american and british uh publications they will demonize the government they will uh, portray it as being fascist and this phobic or that phobic non inclusive and so on and so forth so they will what they will do is they will try and create this impression this narrative that the soft state which is now trying to become a hard state is doing this with malafied intentions malafied intentions internally and externally so india will be portrayed as an aggressor towards smaller countries like nepal towards sri lanka they it india will be portrayed as a bully for whatever reason even though india has never bullied anybody and india the indian government will be portrayed as a fascist government even though it doesn't meet any of the definitions of fascism so this is the kind of setback it can face from its own people and other things are like internal disruptions like the farmer protests and all that which are aimed at destabilizing and weakening the government and hopefully bringing it down in the next election so these are the things that are done to engineer a regime change from within and without the country from from inside the country and from outside the country all of these forces are funded organized and orchestrated from somewhere outside so these are the things that happen when a soft state tries to become a hard state and starts trying to pursue its own national interest all the hyenas jackals and vultures start circling all the dogs start barking and biting and it takes great leadership to survive that phase so that's what we are seeing right now and it will take great leadership to take india to the next phase and make it a proper hard state and hopefully a superpower in the future okay let me take some other questions Aditya Trivedi says why after the parliament attack attack did india not declare war on pakistan and the government was under atal bihari vajpayee and what were the intelligence bureau and raw doing so india did not attack declare war on pakistan after the after the parliament attack because india is a soft state 
India has always been a soft state. Even Mr. Vajpayee, <laughs> even Mr. Vajpayee was not very different from the previous uh, prime ministers of India. I think one of the great prime ministers of India, which I have not spoken about much, is uh, was Mr. P. V. Narasimha Rao. I think he was one of the great prime ministers of India, and he pulled India out of chaos. And his his contributions are not quite recognized. That is a digression. But uh, India should have made Pakistan pay a very heavy price for the parliament attack. Which Mr. When was the parliament attack? Which year was it? Let me take a look. So I think it was in two thousand and one. and clearly mr vajpay was in power at the time so there was this this operation parakram or something there was this war game that was played in in a, and the armed forces of india were placed on high alert on the western border on the pakistan border and the pakistani forces also were given time to come and face india and so on but at the end of the day it was all just an exercise in optics and pakistan was not made to pay a price for what it did for trying to attack the heart of india's uh, governance the parliament and that emboldened pakistan when somebody does something like that they have to be made to pay a price and if they don't pay the price then they will become bolder and they will try something even more audacious and that's what happened in in 2008 in mumbai and there were many bomb blasts in between many terrorist attacks uh mumbai 2008 there were mumbai 2006 or something bomb blasts train blasts many people lost their lives again the pakistanis did that and again they were not made to pay for this there were blasts in delhi other places so this is the definition of a soft state the indian politicians lacked the will the courage to take uh, actions in favor of india's national interest i don't know what is the reason for this i simply don't understand so now things have changed and hopefully it is changing it is going to change further india india will finally <laughs> become the country that it always has needed to be so one hopes that is the case okay uh some other questions let me see Arnav says, "Do you think uh, Gubnami Baba was Netaji Shubhashchandra Bose? I truly believe that Netaji was Sub- that Gubnami Baba was Shubhashchandra Bose. I also uh, have the strong feeling that uh, the gentleman known as Gubnami Baba was actually Netaji Shubhashchandra Bose. I believe that is most likely the case." And I think Anuj Dar has written has done a great deal of research about this and has even written a book. or or multiple books i'm not sure i haven't had the time to read any of his works i it is something that i would like to do in the future if i can find the time but yes i think it is quite likely that gumnami baba was netaji subhashchandra bose it's quite likely i think arunav says is there any truth in calculus calculus originating in india or was it exclusively invented by newton considering leibniz also is said to have developed it first and newton's feud with robert hook 
So Newton's feud with Robert Hooke is a different story. Newton was a petty and jealous person. Robert Hooke was a brilliant scientist who was totally marginalized by Newton. His Robert Hooke's portrait doesn't even survive today because Newton had it removed and destroyed. So Newton was a very petty and vindictive person. Now, where did calculus originate in India? Where did calculus originate? India or in England? or in Germany, Leibniz, calculus originated in India, uh, in the Kerala School of Mathematics, at least a century before Newton and Leibniz discovered it at the same time. Okay, so it is the Kerala School of Mathematics that has been demonstrated and proven to have developed calculus at least a century before Newton and Leibniz. And this knowledge was stolen from India by Jesuit priests who brought it to Europe. And it is no coincidence that Newton and Leibniz both came across calculus and both published their first works in calculus in the same year. The same thing, the same year. I mean, what sort of a coincidence is that? So it's clear that it was developed in India. It was stolen by the Jesuits and transmitted to Europe. So Newton or Leibniz, neither of them discovered calculus. It was the Indians. It was the Kerala School of Mathematics. Okay, what other questions do we have? Okay, Rohan says, hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles versus lithium-ion battery electric vehicles which or, or any other battery electric vehicle which one is the real future for bev we need to overhaul our entire power our whole entire power transmission systems uh, still we need hfc for heavy vehicles and other machinery what's my view i think the hydrogen fuel cell is not as efficient as a lithium ion or other kind of battery I think the hydrogen fuel cell also needs liquid. Um, it has a liquid component to it, if I'm not mistaken. It's been a long time since I uh, studied this technology. But I think from the sense that I get, uh, what I what I think is that uh, the future is in lithium ion and other, other solid batteries. Hydrogen fuel cells may not quite be the future. They may not be as efficient or as... Uh, as easy to transport and use than these solid batteries like the lithium-ion batteries. So that is going to be the future. And that's the direction that the various uh, electric vehicle manufacturers have taken. For example, Tesla. Tesla is, is investing heavily in lithium-ion batteries. They have developed and developed the technology and made it quite advanced iteratively. They started with this standard batteries that they purchased from various suppliers, but then slowly over time they started developing their own batteries. And now they are constructing the, this gigafactory. I think it's in Texas or somewhere else, somewhere in the US, which will produce enormous quantities of these batteries. And these will also be used in heavy vehicles like uh, pickup trucks, SUVs, and proper large, large long haul trucks. So the technology is going to be good enough to power uh, very heavy vehicles. 
So I think that is the future. Hydrogen fuel cells are no longer being considered, uh, as far as, as I know, very seriously for powering electric vehicles. I think it's it's the solid batteries like the lithium-ion batteries that are the future, most likely. Okay, let us take one more question. Tejas says, Sapiens supports the Aryan invasion theory. How can you support it? Well, I have my own intelligence. I have my own, I have done my own studies. I know what the evidence is. I don't care what Sapiens says. If so-and-so person supports it, it doesn't mean that I have to blindly support it. It's as simple as that. How can I support it? Because I want to. Because I trust my own intelligence. Right? That's why I support um, the Aryan invasion theory. What exactly is the question? Sapiens supports the Aryan invasion theory. How can you support it? How can I support it? So, <laughs> what am I supporting? Am I supporting sapiens? Or am I supporting the Aryan invasion theory? What is the question? I don't support the Aryan invasion theory. I think uh, all of you know that by now. Do I support sapiens? Well, I haven't... I don't remember saying that I support sapiens. I haven't read the book. I have it somewhere. I haven't read it. I haven't uh, had the time to read it. The thing is, most of the history books that are available anywhere, they support the Aryan invasion theory. I have a separate video on this channel in which I have given re uh, recommendations of history books. And I have also said that most of these history books will support the Aryan invasion theory. You have to be aware of that. So let's say you have a history book that is a really good history book, but the author supports the Aryan invasion theory. What are you going to do? What I would say is don't read that part, but read the other uh, other sections of the book which actually have good history, right? Which are written well. That is the problem you, you're always going to face, that uh, most of the history books, mainstream history books, support the Aryan invasion theory, but they also have uh, good depictions of other parts of history. So that's what I would say. Okay, let's take something else. Uh, should we remove the word secular from our preamble? We should remove the constitution, have a, have a new constitution. That's what needs to happen. Okay, Tejas is clarifying. He was telling somebody else in the chat about that. Okay, got it. <laughs> got it. Okay, what else do we have? I'll take maybe one or two more questions. Shikhar Saraf says, what is your take on Shashi Tharoor's, Shashi Tharoor's work, works on history? I haven't read any of those. So, what can I say? Maybe he's a good writer. Maybe, but we all know what his, uh, what his opinions are. He is a great supporter of Mr. Gandhi and Mr. Nehru and the Nehruvian regime. He thinks they, that's the best thing that ever happened to India. He is a great supporter of the Indian constitution, which is so foreign and colonial. So it tells me everything I need to know about the person. And once I know that, I'm not going to waste my time reading his works on history. So I 
I expect that some of the things that he has written about may be good. Maybe he's a good writer. Maybe his style of writing is good. And maybe some of the chapters in whatever works he has may actually be factual and some sections may be good. But overall, I know what tone he's going to take. I know, I know overall what thesis is going to put forth. He's going to put forth the thesis that India was essentially born in 1947 and uh, the Nehruvian regime was the best thing that happened to us. The Congress party was great. The British did loot India, but they did a good, great deal of good also for us. And we need to worship Gandhi and Nehru and the Congress regime. And we need to go back in that direction because that is the right idea of India. That is going to be the overall thesis that he is going to put forth. And that's why I have no interest in reading his works on history. So that's the, the, uh, the, what I would like to say or what I can say about Mr. Tharoor's work without having read any of those. Were horses killed in the Ashwamedha Yagna? Yes, at the end of the Ashwamedha Yagna there was a horse sacrifice. Yes. All right. Swastika says, is, is absolute peace possible? Well, we are currently living, as Joe Rogan would say, in Kali Yug. And in Kali Yug, absolute peace is not possible. We have too many evil ideologies, supremacist ideologies, exclusivist ideologies, expansionist ideologies in force in the world today. And in that scenario, in that environment, absolute peace is not possible. Maybe if you can turn the cycle of Yugas around and bring Satya Yug back, then absolute peace may be possible for a certain period of time until the cycle of yugas changes again. So if you look at the overall uh, history of the human species, you will see that we are a very aggressive, warlike species. And overall, we have been typically at war with each other at conflict with each other. We are overall a violent species. It's only when we civilize ourselves with the right kind of culture, it's only then that peace can prevail. But that's not going to be universally, globally possible because you will always have certain other belief systems that will be expansionist, aggressive, exclusivist, supremacist, and so on and so forth. So I think it's, it's very hard to envisage a future or a present in which you will have absolute peace. It's simply not possible. I don't think so. At least in the world that we live in today. Okay. Okay. Is there any other question? Maybe I can take one more question. This is by Charmi. Is it possible to trace back the history of a certain clan? If so, what are the general ways to do so? See, in the West, you have all the genealogy, which means that they trace back your ancestry based on various records uh, that are available in churches and other places. In India, I think it was there before all our great libraries were burned down. Today, we have lost the written records of, of various clans. I think in various Rajput clans, you had these bards, or these uh, family uh, chroniclers who would 
keep records of the people who lived at various points in time in a in a certain clan so if that survives in some places then you may be able to trace back the history and lineage of that particular clan it may be possible in some cases but overall we have lost the written records of our lineages of our history of the various clans so maybe one could speak to the elders of a certain clan and see what memories they have and we could try and record that but to a large extent we have unfortunately lost the hard written records of our past to a large extent so general ways to do that is through genetics test your genetics but for that you need a proper wide wide broad and deep genetic study of the whole overall genetics of india which has not been undertaken there is not even a single plan to do that so if you have that sort of data country wide nation wide subcontinent wide genetic data then you may be able to test your own dna and see where you fit into that and maybe that could give you a general idea of your deep lineages patrilineal as well as matrilineal lineages so that what can happen in the future as of today it's very hard to trace back the history of most clans of most lineages that's where we are today all right i think we have reached the end of today's session so thank you everybody as always a great pleasure talking to you all taking your questions answering your questions and we're going to continue doing that next week and to those of you whose questions i have not been able to answer i apologize there are thousands of you there's only one of me and there's only this much time i do my best i will try and do, keep doing my best and keep asking your questions and i'll keep answering thank you very much all of you for your support for your viewership and i will see you once again very soon next week thank you very much bye